We are back in Romans uh, this week after a break last week with me being out of town. Remember to catch us up uh, on this letter in the New Testament. It was written by one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, a man named Paul, who used to be a terrorist and a hater of Jesus and his people, whom Jesus has saved and redeemed and is now using it as his witness to take the good news that God saves sinners through Jesus to the world. Paul has told us that the, the, the gospel or this good news announcement of Jesus is the power of God for salvation and that it comes only through faith, not through us uh, working or anything that we've been doing. Paul's writing to this church in Rome, uh, explaining in great and significant detail uh, many, many uh, aspects and facets of the good news of this gospel. Because he hasn't met this church, uh, he hopes to go there and then by them be supported and provided for so that he can take the good news of the gospel of Jesus to the far reaches of the earth. Uh, we have uh, seen uh, that uh, just recently what Paul has been telling us is that through the work of Jesus, although we once were dominated by sin, enslaved to it, and guilty of our own breaking the law and deserving of God's uh, just penalty for that, that through the work that Jesus has done through faith, we have been set free from the penalty of sin that's been removed. Also, the power, the dominating power, once all we could do before was to rebel against God, now we have been set free from the power of sin and freed up in Jesus to walk and beginning to fulfill the law that He's called us to, to, to live. But we've also seen that, that although the penalty has been taken away and the power has been broken, the presence of sin is still there in our world and in our lives, and that battle is intense. What does it look like for us to continue to live in the midst of this intense battle? What provision has the Lord given us? Uh, what further aspects of the gospel help and encourage us in the midst of this great battle that we are facing against uh, sin in our own hearts? Here in this chapter in uh, Romans, uh, Paul is beginning to talk more and more about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is mentioned more in this chapter than elsewhere in the whole book of Romans uh, combined. Paul's trying to direct our attention to that we would understand what it is about the Spirit's work in our lives and in the hearts of the people of God, what that means for us in our battle against sin, what that means for us and who we are in Jesus uh, so, uh, if you would, look with me here in uh, Romans chapter 8. Well, we're going to pick up in verse 12, going down through verse 17 this morning. Uh, so, if you would, uh, follow along with me there in your copy of uh, the Word of God. Uh, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, uh, this is found on page 944. We're going to look at these few verses together. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us first in your prophets, fully and finally in the person of Jesus and through his apostles continuing to expose to us the truths and the reality of the gospel. Uh, we pray this morning that we would see even more how good this news is. In fact, may we see that it is the best news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, if you want to draw a picture for me this morning, how about if you do this? I want you to, to think about uh, a memory of a time with your dad. The funnest time you ever had with him. I want you to draw me a picture of you and your, uh, and your father. Bring it to me after the, after the service. See if you can think about how that applies to our, our passage this morning. Um, as we look in this passage this morning, Paul is helping us understand more and more about our identity uh, in Christ, our identity of those who believe and have hoped and trusted in Jesus, what is true of us. He's going to focus, uh, I'm going to draw our attention to three things here. Uh, one is that, if, uh, that we are those who are led by the Spirit. Second, we are sons. And third, we are heirs. So we're led by the Spirit. We're sons. We're heirs. First, seeing how Paul emphasizes and draws our attention that those who have trusted in Christ, who are found in Christ, are led by the Spirit. Notice there in verse 12, where he's going is connected to what we've just finished up hearing about earlier in chapter 8. Notice in 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Well, well why not? Well, remember what he just closed up telling us. This, he's using this language of flesh and spirit. It's important that we understand and we're reminded again what that means. Flesh isn't, just, isn't talking about skin, that our material existence is bad. Paul is using this language of flesh contrasted with the spirit to talk about what dominates and motivates and, and, and leads us. To be in the flesh is to be one who is still dominated and controlled and led by sinful passions, distorted rebellion against God in the world. We are those who are still in Adam, to use that language that we saw earlier. That Adam is our representative. We're still guilty of all of the problems and the curses that he brought into this world and that we're struggling and facing. To be in the flesh is to be enslaved to sin, continuing to give ourselves over to those passions and not to the glory and honor of our God. Uh, that is the present world. But to be spiritual or to be uh, led or empowered by the Spirit is to be dominated by and, and affected by and motivated by the world to come, the renewed and transformed world, uh, where, again, ultimately, the presence of sin will be completely taken away. We have new motives, new desires, a new way of living. In fact, just looking at verses 9 through uh, 11 of chapter 8, listen to the things that, that, that Paul says here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit does not of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul is saying we've been set free. We've been transformed. Now who's come to dwell in us is our very God. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ is now dwelling within believers. Think about if we reflect back into the Old Testament of thinking about the tabernacle and the temple. Where did the special presence of God uniquely dwell in the midst of of the entire world? It was in the Holy of Holies. The holiest place on the planet was in the the place in the temple where the high priest could only go once a year because it was so holy. Now God is saying, in light of the work that Jesus has done, God has come to dwell in you. That barrier that was up has been broken down and the Holy Spirit is is in us and transforming us, setting us free. And He is good at His work. Therefore, if that is true... If God has done such a work for us in Jesus that, the, the, that God Himself is dwelling in us, residing in us, and has set us free, Paul says here, so then, if all of that is true, if we now belong to Jesus, if we are in Him, then we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We don't owe sin anything anymore. Before, you were obligated You had to obey it. You were enslaved. But Paul is saying now you've been set free. You do not have to obey sin anymore. Remember and think through. If God has graciously set us free in Christ, then we would want to follow Him. Don't be confused in thinking, I have to give in to these old desires that I am completely enslaved and I can do nothing anymore. No, Paul says. Remember, You aren't in debt there. You have been set free. You have been set free to serve another. And the Holy Spirit is in you. But He also reminds us of this. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Remember, He's he's directing our attention and using language that's familiar of back in the Garden of Eden. Remember what God promised Adam and Eve? His obeys God, follows God, trusts God, responds to Him in the garden, then life is there. But the consequence of disobedience is death. If you disobey God, you will die. Paul is saying, remember the pathway of sin? Remember the consequence and the result? That's not true of you anymore. You've been set free. The penalty has been taken away. The Spirit offers you life. Why would you continue to give yourself an enslavement and to Give yourself over to that which leads to death. Find life in Jesus. Find life through the Spirit. In fact, he goes on and he he says, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? This isn't talking about special, unique insight that the Spirit gives us. New revelation. It's not speaking about being led by the Spirit of these little liver quivers or shudders you get, and like, oh, this must be a sign that God's leading me this way. No, there's a specific thing that the Spirit leads us. Remember what we've been talking about, what we saw in chapter 7, why Paul has been emphasizing all of this 
the necessity of us pursuing holiness and righteousness in the power of the Spirit. Because the battle with sin is intense. Because we've been set free, sin is now uh, attacking us. Satan is, is, uh, is on the prowl. And notice what Paul says. To be led by the Spirit is, in verse 13, is to put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit enables and empowers and is at work in us to fight in this mortal battle. To deliver death blows to that which is attacking us. Not in our own strength, but through, as he says, but by the Spirit. It is necessary for God's people to battle and wrestle with sin. And it's also possible for us to see ongoing growth and in holiness and righteousness and honoring God. Why? Because we don't battle in our own strength. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. So Paul says, in light of being those who are led, who, who, whose mind and heart and motives and will is being transformed by the Spirit, use all the resources that you've been given to address and battle sin. If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, we should expect to see evidence of His holy house-cleaning work happening in our hearts and our lives. We should expect to see growth and movement. And one of the ways that the Spirit does that is through helping us battle and fight and put sin to death. How do we do that? Well, when the Spirit exposes it to us, we bring it before our God. We call it what it is. It's sin. We recognize where it's leading, death. We recognize it's contrary to what God has called us to. We reflect on His goodness and His character for us. And we put it to death and we rebel against it. We've been freed up to not obey it anymore, but to listen and follow our God. And here, God in His mercy is calling us as His people to battle and repent and fight against our sin. Some of us may feel overwhelmed as we've seen this in other passages of of our sin over us, feel like we can't do anything. And you're right, you can't. You can't do anything about it in your own strength. But the Spirit of the living God is enabling and empowering us to do what we can't do on our own. Some of us here may be apathetic to the sin that's in our lives. But we need to recognize that those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, what is true of us is we are those who are led by the Spirit. We are those who should hate sin and seek to put it to death in our own lives and continually bring it to Christ. May we live out who we are, recognizing who dwells in us and that we do not owe anything to sin anymore. We owe all to the grace and mercy of our God. But notice, as, as Paul goes on, this, we're not just those who are led by the Spirit, but being led by the Spirit is evidence of something, Paul says. Look at, the, at verse 13. Do you see how he ended that? Or verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Sons of God. If, if we came up with that designation, that status, that relationship to the Creator of all things in and of ourselves, it would be the peak and the height of arrogance to think that creatures could relate to our God as sons. But here, that is what we're hearing. 
That is what God is telling us. It's, did you realize the implications of this? What Paul's been telling us about from the very beginning, from chapter 1, is about the good news of the gospel. And I don't know about you, but for me, everything that we've heard so far, although he's had to tell us what the bad news is so that we understand how good the good news is, that our sin has been forgiven, that we are uh, relate to God based on what Jesus has done, not what we have done. But here, the good news gets even better. We're not just forgiven. We're not just declared right before God. But He calls us His sons. This, this is incredible. Creatures can have this type of intimate, loving, relationship and acceptance with our God. Paul here is using legal terminology again. Remember, we, we've tr we're trying to get ourselves familiar with the, the language and terms that Paul's using. Remember, we stood guilty. God was judge. We broke His law. We rebelled against Him. We committed high treason. The creature decided to place ourselves in the place of, of, of God and King and Lord. And the just penalty for that was God's rejection of us, death, both now and eternally. But God, the judge, said, I'm going to provide another to do what you couldn't do. God declares us forgiven of our sin, but also because Jesus of Nazareth lived the perfect life that we couldn't, God has said, I will count his life to your account. What you did, I'm placing on him and judging, and your sins are punished in him, and you are forgiven. But I'm declaring you righteous and right before me. It is as if you've never sinned, and it, it, as, it is as if you have always kept the law. But the judge does something else. He uses other terminology, the terminology of adoption. Can you imagine a judge who declares someone innocent in court? And then says, not only that, but I am now going to adopt you. I am going to bring you into my family. I'm going to love you. I'm going to provide for you. What is mine is yours. What judge does this? The, the declaration of innocence was good. But that we now have a relationship of love and we relate to our God as Father, that is... That is even better. It blows our minds. The goodness of this news that Paul is proclaiming. He continues to go on, reminding us, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We need to remember again, in light of what the spirit has done, you aren't enslaved to sin anymore. Before, the way we should have related to God was in fear. Why? Because He broke His law. We deserved His judgment. We were, should recognize our sin and our rebellion against Him. But Paul says that's not true anymore. The Spirit, through the work the Spirit's done in our lives, we've been set free, and now we've been adopted. We've been brought into His family as sons. There's something important we need to recognize here. In Paul's time and in Roman culture, sons were viewed as being the, the special offspring. 
Daughters, women were viewed and, uh, as far as having a lesser status. But Paul here, by talking to this entire church and calling men and women, boys and girls, sons of God, he's turning that completely upside down. And what might sound like him being demeaning, he is actually bringing great honor and dignity to the women and the girls in this church of saying, regardless of what the society says, your God views you as a son. Others of us may have relationships with Father that to hear and think about God being our Father brings up great pain, brings up a sense of fear. But notice what Paul is pointing us to. Fear does not exist in the relationship that we have with the perfect Heavenly Father. In every aspect that our earthly fathers fail and they do and they will, our God is not like those earthly fathers. He is the perfect one who loves and cherishes and always does what is good for His people. And as Paul continues to go on, he, he says that since we have this adoption, since we've brought into his, been brought into His family, it is by the Spirit who is dwelling within us that we cry, Abba, Father. What does that mean? Paul here is talking about us calling out to God as our, as our Father. Think about it. Your experience growing up. When were times that you called out to your dad? Or if you're a father now, when do you hear your name cried out in your house? Daddy! It could be when you're afraid. I hear it when my kids have bad dreams. I hear it when carpenter bees are on the prowl in the spring. Daddy! I hear it when they're in trouble and something's spilled or they're stuck or they can't reach anything. I hear it when they're in need. I can't reach a bowl. I need oatmeal. I need help going to the bathroom. I hear it when they're sad. Daddy, tears. I hear it when they're excited. Daddy, daddy's home. Do you recognize what Paul is saying here? In every single one of those aspects and ways that children cry out to their God or to their father, you are invited. You are enabled. You are given the privilege and the right to cry out to God like that. Actually here, the the word that's used for crying is more rooted in in a time of great distress, despair, fear, Think about it, in, the, in the, the living in a world where we feel dominated and overcome by sin and we can't do anything and we need one who will come and work and act. Daddy! And he listens and he hears and he does not dismiss your cry. You may have had a dad that ignored your cries. You may have had a dad who ridiculed you because you cried out to him. You may have had a dad that punished you because you need to toughen up and do it yourself. Not this God. He loves you. 
How do you know? That, that language. Cry, Abba, Father. You know, there's only one person in the entire Bible that used that phrase as he spoke to God. And you know who it was? Jesus. And you know where he used that phrase? In the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is under great distress as he's headed to the cross to bear the burden of, of his, the sin of his people and to die on their behalf. And in his great distress and pain, when he is, uh, is alone and isolated, when even his disciples are falling asleep on him, and later they will flee and run and abandon him, he calls out, Abba, Father. Do you see what, what the good news of the gospel is saying? You can talk to God the way that Jesus, the Son of God, speaks to him. God says here in this passage, you know what? You know how my son talks to me? You know what my son calls me? Abba, Father. You know what I want you now to call me? How I want you to relate to me? Because this is what my children do. This is how they speak to me. The very way that Jesus spoke of and to his Father is how we are invited and called to speak to and relate to Him. Whoa. Sons, children, this blows our minds. Sometimes we may begin to think, there's no way. There's no way I could speak to God like that. There's no way He would view me like this. Not in light of what I've done. Not in light of who I've been. Not in light of what I'm thinking right now or what I've done this week. There is no way. We may doubt and we may be discouraged. We may hear the lies and the accusations of the evil one. Paul's going to get into this later, but he's bringing this uh, a hint of it here. Satan, the accuser. You're really calling yourself a child of God? How dare you? Why would you ever think he would love you? You of all people that way. How arrogant are you? If, if there ever was a chance that this was true, you've disqualified yourself a multiple times over. Remember what you did last night? Remember what you did when you were 15? There's no hope for you. But again, notice. Notice what Paul tells us in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is back again in a courtroom where using the biblical principle that the truth is determined and evaluated based on the, the speaking and the proclaiming of two or three witnesses. Here you may be saying, well, I know that the Scriptures tell me I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. I know that this, the Bible tells me that I can speak to God as Father. And you're in the courtroom and you're saying, yes, I do have a right to call Him. And Satan enters in and he says, no, you don't. You're so wicked and filthy and full of shame and disappointment. You do not deserve to call God your Father. Now it's one against one. But in steps someone, another witness, the best witness, 
The one with the definitive declaration of what is true. The star witness. And he steps in the courtroom and he says, Silence, Satan. I need you to hear what is true of this person. And I need them to hear what is true. You are a son of God. Do you hear that? The, wit the witness of the Holy Spirit speaking to each and every one of you who've placed your faith in Christ. Discount Satan's accusations. And hear the truth of the Word of God and the chief witness that you are a son. Because of what you've done? No! No! Can you force anybody to adopt you? No! You can't. It is totally based on the mercy and free grace of the adopter. And God comes to you and says, I have chosen to bring you into my family and you need to know that you are my son. So we've seen we're led by the Spirit. We're sons, but we may begin to think, well, maybe I'm an adopted son. We all know those are second class to those who are biological true sons. Am I a legitimate son? Notice where Paul goes. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You are legitimate. God has said, you are being brought in as a full son, so much so that you are my heir. And what will you inherit? You will inherit exactly what Jesus is inheriting. How, how is this true? What, what is the inheritance of Jesus? In, in Psalm 16, as David is writing about what is the reality of the inheritance that we have coming from our God. He says this, which is fully true in Jesus. Yahweh, the covenant God, is my chosen portion. That's inheritance language. And my cup, you hold my lot. Again, inheritance language. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Who is his inheritance? It is God. The inheritance of Jesus is our God, a relationship with Him, then so is true for us. In John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying for His people, He says this in John 17, 22-24, The glory that You have given Me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire also that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice, love is there, it's yours, as much as God loves the Son, He loves you. Glory that is given to Jesus is glory that is coming to us when we are renewed and reconciled to our God at the resurrection. That's where Paul is going. Notice at the end of verse 17. Heirs, 
fellow heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The resurrection body that Jesus received is a pattern and pointing to us. Remember what was true of Adam and us in Adam? We fell short of the glory of God. But through the work of Jesus, He is showing us what glorified humanity looks like in our redeemed and reconciled bodies and hearts and lives. That is how we will relate to our God and it is ours. Paul goes on in Ephesians to tell us that in Christ we have an inheritance that has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing us that inheritance. And he says that we are now in Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Ruling, reigning, dwelling with our God. Inheritance, that something that only comes for the beloved Son. But do you hear Because of what the beloved Son has done for us, we are fellow heirs with Him. You are not second class. There are no second class sons. We are sons of God. Now does Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, have a unique relationship to God? Yes. He's the only begotten. He uniquely relates to God in that way. But we are those who have been adopted into His family. And we too have the status and privilege of sons. But notice, notice what Paul says. For following in the pattern of Christ, what came before the glory that Jesus experienced? Suffering. The beloved Son of God experienced suffering. And what he tells us too is that we will suffer in order that we'll be glorified with Him. This is important for us to remember because as we suffer now, the effects of sin in our own lives, our battle with sin, the experience of of suffering under sin and the brokenness of this world, we may begin to question and whether, does this mean God does not love me? No, Paul says. The path, suffering now, confident of the love that is ours in Christ and in hope of Confident assurance of the glory that is to come. This is what is true for us as God's people. We have to remember and recognize it as we battle and struggle and live life in this world, anticipating the full redemption and restoration that's going to come. Uh, We're going to talk about that next week as we look at the implications that it has for transforming all of creation. But for now, Listen and hear and be reminded of this. You are led by the Spirit. Why? Because you are a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God. Not B class, A class. You are heir, full, legitimate, loved, delighted in, child of God. Who who could imagine how good the good news of the gospel is? Forgiven, reconciled, adopted. Believe, rest in, hope in, be confident of this good news that our God has adopted us in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that it just keeps getting better and better and better. And here we see uh, really the, the, the high point of you proclaiming to us what is true of us in Jesus.
How great must He be to accomplish this for us. Thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. May we be those who more and more love You because of the love You've given us in Him. In Christ's name, Amen.